the word that we hear in this place, I pray. Amen. Amen. Hopefully I'm going to get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, but we'll wander around a little bit before then. Um, you know, in Matthew chapter 13, it's a, it's a passage with full of parables. And uh, Jesus tells a couple of parables about the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is so precious. It's like a guy that finds a treasure in a field and then he buries it and he goes and he sells everything that he has and then he goes and he buys that field so he can have that. Or it's like a, a pearl merchant and he's, he finds this most precious pearl and he sells everything that he has so that he can buy that pearl and he can have that pearl. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that precious. Sometimes, you know, we've been in the kingdom for, for a while. We've grown up. We've been around the church. And we forget how precious it is. Now, listen, if I were to say to you, I can tell you just exactly what needs to happen for you to see absolute mass revival and change in Bell County. Would you be interested in that? Would you? Sort of. Some of you would be. Two of you would be. Three of you would be. All the front row people would be, y'all not interested if you hear revival. Do I hear, do I hear somebody's interested back there? All right, you're going to have to help me. We're a small crowd here. You want me to preach good or not? Then you got to help me, right? <laughs> uh, I think you'd be interested. If, if, if I could tell you what needs to happen, and you would see actually families change, you'd see culture change, you'd see shift in the spiritual realm, you'd see all kinds of things happen in Bell County. You'd see because when, when spiritual things change, when lives change, then economies change as well. If you don't believe that, Go down to Guatemala and see what's happened there. Go down to Uganda and see what's happened there. Go around the world and you see what's happened there. I've been all around the world. When people begin to see revival spiritually and their lives are changed, all of a sudden all kinds of things happen, like a chain reaction in the entire culture. I guarantee it 100%. Now, Jesus basically set this up fairly simply. First of all, he said you've got to take care of the things of the Spirit. You've got to be praying. You've got to be, you've got to be breaking those those, those strongholds of the devil, right? Now, we don't do that here. We don't. We just don't do that. We can be honest. We're a family here. This is a no-shame zone. I do not believe in using the devil to get people to, to follow the Lord. So I do not believe in using shame in order to get people to be Christian, right? Because the Bible says there is now no condemnation in, in, in this faith. There is no condemnation. So that's, is that real clear? There's no shame in anything. But can we talk honestly? Can we look at reality? All right. I know because I've called countywide prayer meetings. I've called four or five of them in the last year. And I know we don't pray because people are not coming to these countywide prayer meetings. They're not flocking. We're not hungry. We're not striving. Uh, there's a prayer meeting up the street that's every Saturday morning. I go to it quite often. There's two people out of the entire church, two people that come and pray. So this is not something that we're doing yet. Why aren't we doing it? Because we don't yet have vision for it. We don't really yet see that that is crucial for us to see the changes that we say that we want. All right? So that's part of it. But if I were to say to you, I can tell you just kind of in a, in a physical disciplinary way what needs to take place, what we need to do, and I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you 100% because the Bible talks about it. Jesus did it the, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what you're supposed to do. And if we do that one single thing, it would change the entire community. It would change our schools. It would change our workplaces. It would change, it would change the drug issue problem. It would change our families. It would change all of the broken marriages. And I tell you, that one thing, would you do it? Would you? Would you sacrifice? 
Would you, would you give up your time? <laughs> you're, you're wondering, you're, now you're starting to say, well, well now I'm, I'm starting to get worried. What is it? All right, it's simple. It's called discipleship. Let's say, Mr. Rice, come up here for a minute. How many people you come to this church? All right, let's, let's, let's make it easy because I'm not good with math. Let's say 100. All right, and we want to grow 10 times. So we want to have 1,000 people. How many chairs are in here? There's 250. All right, well, we're praying that this will be full. It'll be full immediately with, with discipleship. But, but we want to see 1,000 people, right? All right, all right, so Elder Rice, all he does, he represents the 100 people that you currently have. All right, so every person in your church simply over a six-month period, simply disciples one single person, one single person that is not here. They just, and, and the, how much did the disciples know about the gospel? I mean, I mean, about all the history and about the theology. Did they know a lot? No, they had a testimony. It says they had a testimony of the things that they had seen that the Lord had done. They had a testimony about their life and the change. That's all they had. All right, so when I talk about discipleship, I'm saying you're taking a person and you're leading them to the place where they have a testimony and then you're turning them loose so they can give that testimony. I'm not talking about a theological degree here. So Elder Rice represents all of you, 100 people, right? And 100 people in six months does that, all right? And so now in six months, how many people do you have? This is quick. You guys have seen this before. Let's not spend time on it. We got 200, right? All right, now 200 people do the same thing. Just one person, only one single person. I mean, you sacrificed your life. You find one person. You talk to them, and you, know, and, and you talk to a bunch of people. Finally, one person is that person of peace. You find that one person, and you begin meeting with that one person every single week. You're meeting with that person. You are putting your life. They are living your, their life with you. You are, or you are eating supper with them. You're inviting them. You are crying with them. You are, you are eating with them. You are laughing with them. You, you share your life, and you share Jesus with them right? For six months, one person is all you are focusing on. One person, maybe once or twice a week, you're meeting with them, right? All right. That's not hard. Is that hard? No, that's not hard, right? So you got 200 people in six months. If they all do that, how many people do you have? You have 400 people, right? So within a year, you've gone from 100 to 400. You already have two services, right? And all you have done is focus on two people, all you've done is focus on two people in an entire year. That's all you've done. And you have 400 people. I'm sorry, you can sit down. All right, in six more months, if all 400 of those do, the math's getting hard for me. How many do you have? 800. One and a half years, you've got 800 people, right? We're trying to get to 1,000, which is 10 times more than what you've got. All right? So we're at one and a half years. In two years, if you've got 800 people doing that, you have 1,600 people, right? Within two years, if you will just reach four people, that's all you do. You will have 1,600 people. Do you know how many people you will have in about four or five years? You will have all of Bell County, every single one of them, every single one of them. Who did this? Who knew this? This guy named Jesus, he took 12 people. He spent his entire life basically with 12 people. One of them rejected him. Do you know how many Christians are in this world right now? Google it. 2.18 billion people are Christians. How many people live on this planet? 7 billion approximately one-third of every single human being on this planet is a Christian. 
Christianity, and now Americans don't realize this, but Christianity is still probably the fastest growing religion in the world. And it is certainly the dominant religion in the world in many places. All we hear about is Muslim this or Muslim that or whatever in certain pockets, Buddhism and Hinduism, obviously, in, in India. But Christianity is growing extremely fast all over the world. Why is it growing all over the world? I was in northeastern, in northeastern India just a couple of years ago. There was a pastor. He was trained as a Buddhist priest. And as a, he was in the, the, the training for monks, and a, a person gave him a tract when he was like in eighth grade, all right? And he came from a line of Buddhist monks. His whole family were Buddhist monks. And so, and, and he got this little tract and he read it and he read it and he read it and he hid it. And then he got his little buddy, his little eighth grade buddy, and they read it and they read it and they read it and they hid it. And then they would sneak out of the monastery and they'd go to the Christians and they would learn about Christianity and they became Christians. And this guy became a pastor a Christian pastor. And what he would do is he would go into this. This was a Buddhist republic. It was a Buddhist kingdom up near Nepal where I was. All right. This is a guy that was a Buddhist monk, secretly became a Christian. He'd go into the villages and he would preach until they would beat him. And then he would come back, he would heal up and he would go back and he would preach until they, until they, they, would, they beat him, right? And then people would become saved. And when they became saved, they, he would grab that young person. He didn't, he didn't coddle the young people. He didn't just give them pizzas and stuff. He would grab them and he says, all right, you're a Christian now. This is what you do. You go in there and you start preaching and you tell them that Jesus is the Lord. And then they would go in and they would be beaten. And they would come back to that pastor and he'd say, okay, get better. All right, go back into that village, all right? And they would pray and they would pray and, the, and one by one by one until, listen, my friends, I was in their church. Their church was thousands of people, no chairs. People hiked up the mountains to get to the gospel, right? In a Buddhist kingdom, right? And they were sitting there and he would start doing this like this and he would start singing and those people would start pounding and they would start pounding and you could feel the spirit of God up on this mountain, on this hill and it was pouring over the cities, right? And somebody just a, a, just a, a few months earlier had died and they brought that and they prayed over that person. That person got up and was healed and, and, and that person said, God sent me back here for five days, just to tell the message. And that person went all around the, uh, that, whole, that whole place telling the message. On the fifth day, that person died again. Now, they were in a village, and this particular pastor was out there preaching, right? And he was waiting because the, the villagers and the monks, the Buddhist monks, had, had gathered all around this little house where he was preaching. And he had a few Christians, and he was preaching his heart out. And he knew, they're going to come in here any minute. They're going to grab me. They're going to beat me. But they never came in. And the entire village started gathering. And he started to hear them. And then all of a sudden, they, they said, get out of there, get out of there. Why? Because the top of the roof was on fire. While they were in there, they were preaching. And the roof was on fire. You, you've heard about that happening with a guy named Moses, right? A burning bush, right? It's happening right now in India. It's happening in different places right now. And the entire village, Buddhist monks and all, converted right there. Because when he walked out, the fire stopped over the, fire, over the house. I talked to that man. That man was the most humble man you could ever talk to. 
And this is happening. Do you know I, I lived, I was a missionary. I wasn't supposed to talk about this. I probably won't get to 1 Samuel 15. But anyway, and I was a missionary in Romania for 10 years, right? In Romania, this is how you become a pastor. I, I was there. I was, I was sitting there, right? And I'm watching. And so the, pastors, the, the pastor, who was a good friend of mine, he was, he was what would be called the district pastor over three different counties, right? And so he came here, and he had a pastor's meeting. All the pastors and all the elders were there, and the deacons were there. And I'm listening there. I have my American buddy, but I speak Romanian. I lived there 10 years, right? So I'm, I'm tracking with him. And he's sitting up there, and he's got this little ledger, and he says, okay, how many, all right, he says, Elder Rice, um, this, is, this is an example. I shouldn't do that because you really are an elder. You know, you know Sister Elder, whatever, uh, stand up. And, and she would stand up. How many churches have you planted to this year? And she would say, I have planted four churches this year. Okay, and he would write that down. And then he'd say, okay, so how many churches have you planted this year? And they would stand up, and he would write that down in the ledger. And I would say, what in the world? And, and, I had, and God had given me a, a prophetic word uh, six months earlier, that there's no possible way. I, I'm not really uh, a prophet or anything, but God had given me his prophetic word in a village church about two women, gave me their names, and it just blew this guy away completely. Blew me away too because I, that never had really happened to me except for twice in my life. And so he's waiting for me to give a word of prophecy to these people. I was sitting there stunned as I'm looking as an American pastor. I'm watching this accountability. And I finally said, Brother Philemon, what are you doing? What is this, you know, at the end of this? And he says, oh, this is how, this is how we do it. This is not how you do it. And I said, no. I, he said, well, in order to become a deacon in our church, you have to plant five village churches in order to become a deacon. And in order to become an elder, you have to plant ten village churches. And you have to be overseeing all ten of those village churches, right? And if, if you... If you are going to become a pastor here, then you have to have all 10 churches reproducing other churches. That's normal. That's normal. That's normal. So why, if that's normal, if why, if Jesus did that, then why do we struggle so much in our country to see a growing church, a disciple-making church, a church that is seeing revival? We pray for revival. We talk about revival. We, we hope for revival. But we're not doing the fundamental discipline necessary to make revival a reality. Now, I believe that God can, like in Wales and other places, we know Jonathan Edwards, he preached and all of New England came, right? Hallelujah. I hope he does that. I hope one day Pastor Odie stands up in, in, right there in Pineville in the courtyard and he says, in the name of Jesus, come and boom, you know, the jails empty out and people fall and God can do that. He can do that, right? But this is also the God who right before he left, he says, I'm asking you to do one thing. Go ye therefore into all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them all these things that I've been teaching you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. That's what he's asked us to do. Man, this is awesome worship. And I guarantee you on Sunday, oh my goodness, there's not a better place that I like to come. I'm not, I'm not praising you or anything. I, I am praising you. That's okay. Uh, I love coming here. This is awesome worship. I'm like, yes, I like that, right? And I feel the Lord. It's not just that it's good, high-quality worship, but, man, I like it, you know? I like people of faith, and I like that. 
Do you think that the worship that we have here will compare to the worship in heaven? No way. No way. Right? Now, we love worship because it brings us face to face with God. We sense God's presence. We sense God's power. And that's great. Do you think that sensing God's love and sensing God's presence, sensing God's power here is comparable to heaven when you are sitting there and he's cherubim and seraphim and thrones and, and man, we are going to be on flat on our faces, on our backs. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to see things that we never imagined. We're going to have colors. We're going to have views. We're going to have angels. Boom! You know, the, 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 I mean, y- you sing awesome but i can't wait till we see an angel of god and a a choir of angels whoa bam that's gonna be awesome isn't it all right what why are we here on earth because we can worship god better there we will see him better there we will know him better there we will have the power there we'll have the authority there we'll have everything and we have uh, we have glimpses of it now we have a taste of it now but then he said then when i see you next it will be at the banquet feast like pastor was saying it will be unleashed it is already being unleashed in many places and even here i believe and i speak that i speak that forth but but we will have uh, we are drinking from a, a little fountain here, we will drink from the fire hydrant there and all these things except for one. There won't be any lost people there. There's one thing we are supposed to be about, one thing only. It's the most important thing. It's the most important thing we can do. And that is to make a disciple. So why don't we? Why do we settle in this country for a dying, dwindling church? I am so sick and tired of hearing people say, our youth are leaving our churches. Why? They're not leaving churches elsewhere. Why are they leaving our churches? Remember, there's no shame here. It's not, I'm not putting shame on anybody here. I think there's three reasons. One, uh, we lack vision. We just lack vision. In other words, this is the deal. I think to myself, what's a big deal if I... What's the big deal if I uh, get one kid? You know, I'm, I'm trying to get a mentoring program going. I've got two from this church. I've asked 14 or 15 churches. Guys, I've only have three. I spent $11,000 in training. And I don't care about that. Except for, I'm like, every single school district has opened their doors and asked us and they've got kids and and they've got them lined up and even they've got them you know 25 this is the most important this is the second more this is the top 25 all right we live in a place with with 65 percent of these children don't even live with their parents and these secular schools are saying come and help us here they are come and disciple them and i'm like why don't we have a thousand people that want to spend an hour with these children, right? And change life. It's because we lack vision. Again, no shame. 
Why? Because we lack vision. Because we think, well, what, what's the use of spending time with one kid or one person, one adult or one neighbor, right? You know, and even if that person changes, that's good. And, we, and we'll say things like, and they're true, you know, a small beginning. But we don't really understand the impact of those words, a small beginning. A small beginning is a seed that brings great fruit. That's the meaning of that expression. And do you understand, who do you change? If you take a child, let's say, you take a child and he becomes a Christian and you begin working in, in, in this child's life, what happens down the road? Do you have that vision? Who is changed by that? That child grows up. That child's family is changed up. That child will get married, right? Most likely. And that spouse will be changed by that. That one disciple, right? And that, 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 that spouse, will have, they will have children. And so their children will be changed. And they will have children. Do you understand if you will change one life, if you will allow God to, to work through you, if you have the faith to change one life, do you understand that you change generations of people? You change generations of people. That's why Jesus worked on 11, and now we have 2.18 billion Christians in the world. It's because Jesus had the vision, because he sees it, because he's Alpha and Omega. And he says, I am ushering in a kingdom. Who was he talking to? He had no kingdom at that moment. It was him. There was no one else. And, and a few disciples that had no clue what that meant. In fact, we know they had no clue because right before he left in Acts, they said, are you bringing in the kingdom? They had no idea what he was talking about most of the time. Jesus had the vision of the Father, and he spoke that vision into existence, and he lived that vision into existence, and he sacrificed his entire life for that vision until the point that he was crucified as a thief. Misunderstood. But he knew if I change 11, I'm going to have 2.8 billion, and one day I'm going to ride back here on a white horse and this whole place... This whole place is going to bow. And you see, that's the vision we've got to have in our head. That if we will change one life, our entire culture will change. We lack vision. We also lack knowledge. It's been like generations Generations where we have defined church as a place that we come and we hear a good message, right? But, but oftentimes, every pastor knows this. I was, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I know that, that this message that I'm giving you now, you'll remember parts of it. But a lot of it you won't remember by Sunday. And somehow we defined this, this thing called church by how well... How, how much service we're doing, how much worship we're doing, we're doing all of these things. But somewhere along the generations, we have taken out the one thing that God has asked us to do, and we don't do that. And we have forgotten even how to do that. And so it's a lack of vision, but it's also a lack of knowledge. And you wonder, how in the world could that have happened? If you ask a pilot, a pilot, what happens if you get one degree off while you're flying, a normal, a normal speed of flight? A pilot will tell you, if you're off one degree, then for every mile that you fly, you're going to be 92 feet off course. All right? And so what that means is, if you fly around the world, just follow the equator from the place that you start, and you would think that if you stayed on course, you would come around the world and you would land at the same spot, right? But not if you're one degree off. Because if you do your math, what will happen is, by the time you fly around the world, you'll be 500 miles off course. All right? Now, let's make it real. Let's say you're, 
you're in New York or in, East, uh, in the East Coast, you're at LaGuardia or JFK or some airport like that, and you've got a meeting, that you, a very important meeting in Los Angeles, so you have to fly to LAX, all right? And so your pilot is in a brand new airplane. He's the best pilot. He's got the, the best food. It's got the best seats. You're in first class. It's an awesome flight. Everything's so great about it, except for one little thing. That pilot misjudges by one degree. One degree. And by the time he flies across the United States and tries to land in LAX, he's going to overshoot that airport by 40 miles in the Pacific Ocean. And you are going to land, and you're going to grab that little seat cushion that they've been telling you your whole life to grab if you land in water. And you are going to be sitting in the Pacific Ocean being eaten by sharks. This is the point. The difference between life and death can be one degree. The devil doesn't care if you have great worship and you have great preaching and you have, he does not care. He will allow you to have all these things. All he wants you to do is get off one degree. And he wants you to be off one degree for generation after generation after generation until we end up with 60 churches in our county who are dying. Why? Because we're one degree off. Why? Because we're not making disciples. And somehow or another, over the generations, we've gotten okay with that. And we've said, that's all right, but we've got good preaching. We've got good choirs. We've got good music. And we've, I don't know why the youth are leaving, but we've got good this. We've got good that, you know. We've got good people, right? No, we don't. We're one degree off. We're dying. And everybody says that, and then we all get depressed, and we think, well, we don't know what well, the culture, all right? And so we say it's the culture's fault. It's the culture's fault that we're dying. Are you saying to me that the American culture is more pagan than the Roman culture or the Greek culture? Are you saying that the American culture is more difficult to win people than a Buddhist kingdom or a Hindu nation? No, we cannot blame our culture, right? We have to, we have to, and our pastors and our elders, and, and I really feel like, like I need to somehow come alongside and help with this in the county, is that we have to figure out how do we give our people a simple tool, a simple tool, and that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. I haven't gotten to it, but a simple tool to, to make disciples because we honestly have forgotten how, I think. And then finally, we lack discipline. And this is why, what I mean by that. There was a study done in uh, Bristol University. And in this study, they took 3,000 people that were making New Year's resolutions. And they, they asked them, do you think you're going to keep your New Year's resolution? 52% of the people said, yes, definitely, I'm going to keep my New Year's resolution. How many people actually kept their New Year's resolution? It's a pretty good group of people. 88% did not keep their resolution. You thought I was going to say did. 88% did not. 12% did. Typically, nationwide, about 8% people of people will keep a New Year's resolution. I made a New Year's resolution last year that I was going to double my intake of ice cream, and I've kept that. No, I haven't really. I didn't really do that. But I, I, I know... 
why, 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 why do we, do we just, are we just a, a people that like discipline? No. We don't understand the way discipline works. You see, we think that if we individually make a, make a choice that we're going to do this, then we will do it. We almost never do. Why is that? When God created you, how did he create you? He created you in his image, right? Right? Okay. That means a lot of different things. But one thing that you have to know about God as you study scripture is that he's a trinity, right? So he is three persons with one divine nature, one single divine essence in three different individual people. You know, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. And they all play a different role, right? But they work in absolute single communion, and they are one single deity and one single divine nature. And that's the complexity of the Trinity. But you were created that way. That's why you're soul, spirit, and physical. That's also why the marriage is the closest description of God. It's the closest description of the image of God. It's because that's where two people really become one, and in a Christian marriage, there's God, right, as part of that. That's why that was the first institution that he made. He said this, and that's also why when he created Adam, he said, that's not, that's not good enough. Everything else was good, but he said, that's not, and he had to make a Eve. And then he said, ah, oh, now that's the image that I'm looking for, right? All right, so all that to say, what time is it? I thought, okay, I'm going to end. I didn't get to 1 Samuel 15, but that doesn't matter. All this, all, all this to say is that we were created for this communion. We're created for this communion with God, to walk in the presence of God at all times, right? But we're also created for that communion with each other. And without that, we're, we're not walking as God had walked, all right? And so the, one of the reasons that we don't have the discipline to really go through discipleship or do anything, really, long-term, any major change, is because we try to do it alone. And we've never created those authentic spaces of community. We've not taken the time. Our, our churches haven't created them. We have small groups and different things. Like I'm talking about authentic community of, a, of small groups of people where you can be completely honest. And not only you can be honest, but you know that they will be honest. I have disciples. I have disciples, but I can be very, very clear with you the reason I have disciples and the reason I'm, I'm living a missional life is because I know Joel Pulis. You don't know him. He's from Dallas. I know he's calling me on Monday. I, I know that there are people in my life that I'm in absolute community with. And if I'm not, they're saying, hey, you said you wanted to make disciples. Why aren't you? They will ask me that question point blank. And they will say, hey, there's no shame in it. I just want to know why. Can you give me a reason? In other words, they understand that when we make a commitment before the Lord, that it is a commitment before the Lord, and there's an expectation. And then they say, well, you made that. That was your choice. So what's happening? And you got to have that or you don't change. Iron sharpens iron, right? Transformative conversations is how we are transformed. That's why Jesus gave all these transformative conversations. Like, who do, who do people say that I am? And they answer, and then he looks at them, well, who do you say that I am? <laughs> Boom. You know, the, the rich young ruler comes and asks him, how must I be saved? Oh, all you need to do is go sell everything. Transformative conversation right there. He just held up his mirror. He says, why did you call me good? 
you know, boom. That's what we're talking about. Jesus did this all the time. He did it all the time. And yet what we're looking for all the time is harmony, harmony, harmony. And what he's created us for is for iron sharpening iron and transformation. Do you want God's revelation? Well, he's not going to give you his revelation in the way that you expect. Otherwise, it's not revelation. Revelation is always the unexpected. And how do you get the unexpected? You get it through iron sharpening iron type of relationships with God and with human beings. So, friends, I believe God is going to move in this place. I believe he is. And I believe that God is going to move here. And I believe fundamentally, again, this is not, this is just, for me, this is just a fact. I believe that this congregation is the most potential-filled congregation in the entire county. That's what I believe. And I don't even attend here. And I, I have been to a lot of the churches in this area. So everything that I've said has been just simply to say, guys, man, do not believe the lies. Do not believe the lies about a church in decline. Do not believe the lies about, about the culture being the problem. Do not believe the lies about any of these other excuses or anything. There's one thing that we've got to do. There are two things that we've got to do. We've got to fall on our faces. We've got to break the spiritual bondage. We've got to cry out to God. We've got to pull in every spiritual power and authority. That's really what I wanted to talk about tonight. And secondly, we have got to make a disciple. Simply make a disciple. One at a time, over and over again, and you will see a fundamental generational change in your families, your cultures, your cities, and every strata of this entire place. I guarantee it. And you told me when we started, if I gave you the answer and the guarantee to change the culture, that you would be willing to sacrifice, to get it. And so I just lay that before you again, not in shame, but in holding up the mirror that you said you would. Father, may the Spirit of God give us power and authority, and I know he already has because he's given us the command. Now may he give the wisdom and the strength and the fellowship and the love and the perseverance, and the honesty, and the gruel tenacity that we need, oh God. And Father, I pray that you would change this culture in the name of Jesus, that you would turn it upside down in the name of Jesus, that you would turn it completely upside down in the name of Jesus, that those things that are dark would become light, those things that are false would become true, those things that are broken would become mended, those things that are diseased would become healed, those things that are, that, are, that are struggling would become easy. And Father, we ask you for your conviction. We ask you for your spirit to fill us with a conviction of the Most High God and a brokenness for the lost, oh God, and a brokenness for the hurting, oh God. And Father, I command in the name of Jesus, if there is any voice of shame, 
in this place, if there's any internal voice of shame, I command it to shut its mouth in the name of Jesus because we are fully, fully abiding inside of you and we are pleasing in your sight. And we are grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would like to know more about Our Father's House and upcoming events, log on to ourfathershouseky.org.